0: This week, on Kettle of Fish, comedian Liz Neely stops by to talk about bringing the funny to Fringe Fest and Hulu. Welcome to our author show.
1: We call Kettle of Fish the No Politics Master Show. It's time for Kettle of Fish. No debate, hate or argument allowed on Kettle of Fish. It's like a Willy Wonka psychedelic acid trip. So hooray for Kettle of Fish. All righty, welcome to Kettle of Fish, the show after the show, the talk after the talk, the 20-minute comedy money shot after the two hours of political foreplay. We've got Dean here today, and Fern, yep. are you guys ready to get fishy with it? Glub, glub, baby. <laughs> That's I'm a like I'm a water
2: baby, I'm always ready. All yeah.
1: right, we've got Liz Mealy coming on. Am I saying that, Mealy. Mealy? Mealy. Yes, Mealy. Um, Mm -hmm. Liz Mealy coming on. um, I wanted to talk to her about two or three really specific things. I went down to Liz Rabbit Hole. There is so much. She has so much content, so much awesome stuff. I know Fern and Dee are both loving Damage, correct, her animated series? Heck yes.
2: And I showed it
0: to my oldest, and she's like, hey, that's pretty cool. I was like, yeah, yeah, it is pretty cool. And I go downstairs and watch it. (laughs) No, she likes it, too. Alrighty,
1: fair enough. So I'm probably going to go off script here and talk about a couple other things that I found doing my, as you always say, Fern, due diligence, because I'm a studious host. Let me get Liz Mm -hmm. in here. Liz, Mealy, hello.
0: Howdy, thanks for having me.
1: No problem. Happy super boring Sunday, as I call it. Um, you know, I am not a football fan at all. The only thing I know about the Super Bowl is the Simpsons and Family Guy is not on tonight because of it. Are you a football fan, and do you have Super Bowl plans?
0: Um, I learned a couple of years ago to not book gigs on Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, because nobody comes. Um, so then I was like, well, if I'm not doing gigs, maybe I'll go to a Super Bowl party and just eat some guacamole and like just tweet out about uniforms and then... Now I have so many food allergies that, like, even the food isn't exciting to me. So I am going to see a movie tonight with a friend that grew up in Singapore, and we're just going to enjoy the fact that nobody's going to be in the theater with us.
1: Very enjoy. nice. That is a great exit strategy. All right, let me Thank jump you. in I'm very here proud of it. quick. You, as you should be. Um, let me jump in here. We've only got twenty to thirty minutes. I did want to talk to you about a few things, but let me go off script here because while researching you. So many amazing things. Of course, I went in and downloaded your special Emotionally Exhausting, Blown Away. I actually laughed out loud, which is a big hats off to you because I don't laugh out loud often. But, and yeah. I, Thank I, you. I, I hate bringing things up that I, when I go back and listen to interviews, I hear people talk about because it's like oh, I'm, they're probably so sick of talking about this. But there's a couple things I've got to hit on because they're amazing. George Carlin. Called you early in your career you sent out a bunch of emails you're like hey i need some guidance here i'm an up-and-comer i'm 14 years old how do i break into comedy one of the people who got back with you i i think only two people got back but the big one was george carlin he actually called you you build a friendship with him and and the question that wasn't asked that i wanted to know is how did the people like how did your parents react how did your friends react did they believe you I mean, are you just floored? I, that's give me a sense of the feeling when this happens because this is just an amazing story to me.
0: Well, keep in mind, I come from a long history of mental illness, and I've always been fearful that I was going to lose my mind. And so, you know, uh, the phone call happened when I was 15, and a part of me was like, "This is it. This is when my mind goes." <laughs> yeah. Like I, I really, if I, and the other thing is, that I'm one of five kids. It is very rare that I'm home by myself. And this was one of the rare moments. I was home by myself. My mom told me to fold some laundry. I was like watching a movie, folding laundry, and I get this phone call a couple weeks after I mailed him a letter. And we talked for like ten minutes. He gave me a bunch of advice about like writing and stuff. And I, I mean, my, is this on funny, a landline dad, and, or a
1: cell phone in your house?
0: Is a landline. I yeah. I was fifteen. I didn't have a cell phone. And um, and uh, yeah, it was. I mean, to me. Because it blossomed into, um, like, an ongoing correspondence that kind of turned into, like, a little mentorship, friendship thing. I now know that it was real. But, like, at the time, I had a lot of doubts. And it was funny. I remember because I had written to 40 comedians because I just – I didn't want anything for anybody. I just wanted advice. I was just so in love with stand-up, and I knew it's what I wanted to do, but I was 15, and I was scared, and I, you know – never I don't think I ever actively tried to do anything before you know what I mean it's always you just do what people tell you to do and sometimes you like doing it and sometimes you don't but I was so obsessed with stand-up and I just wanted to know everything about it and I read so many books and I don't know I was just really I was just really hungry for knowledge about this thing that made me happy at a time in my life where I wasn't and it's funny, my dad's, like, super 50s, like, raised by nuns kind of shit, and he, um... Am I allowed to curse? Yeah,
1: yeah, oh, please. Okay. Yeah, no, curse away. Um,
0: um, but he never liked George Carlin, and as I kind of... As he called me and always wrote me back, and eventually I had his email and his phone number, he always got back to me. He, like, sent me free tickets, I had lunch with him, all this stuff, and my dad became such a George Carlin fan because he started to be able to kind of separate the the comedian from the person, which I think is really wow. important sometimes because yeah. to me, he definitely, he always influenced me as a comedian because I just am all of what he does. But the bigger influence is probably who he is as a person. Like I, a lot of who I am today and how I treat other comedians and how I treat my community and how I um, work as a, a professional stems from here is this legend who calls a 15 year old to give her advice. And that has kind of changed my outlook on how you bring people up and how you help people and how you treat people. Because he he didn't just do stuff like that for me, and even when I was in a space where he was there, he always treated people like people. And so you can look at the act, you can say you don't find him funny or he was too crude or whatever you want to say, but he was he was one of the best humans I've ever met.
1: Well, that's um, interesting, and that kind of leads me to this other thing that I always hear you talk about. It's your longing to connect with people, not to be be the center of attention all the time, but to connect with people. And was there a little bit of that kind of encoded on your DNA from growing up dealing with Carlin? And also, um, when it comes to George Carlin, if you had never gotten that original phone call from Carlin, would your career be any different, or would you still have that ambition to break out?
0: Um, I think I would have always had the ambition. It was there, and I was, cause you know, I I still search. I even after that, I, I was always. I guess I was always just kind of looking for answers and mentors and for people to help guide me because I just, I still, I'm still like that with things that most people know how to do. Like I wasn't very. T- I you know, I had emotions, but I was told to keep them under wraps, and I had opinions, but I was told that they weren't valued and. You know, I I was raised in a way that um, I had to do a lot of the undoing, and I had other people, both friends, comedians, um, you know, that I watched on TV and ones that I met, um, therapists, boyfriends. Like, it feels like I'm always looking outside myself for some kind of guidance because I don't feel like, A, I didn't like myself, but B, I didn't feel like I – I felt like I grew up with no real-life tools, And so – if you know, the Carlin thing didn't happen, I think I would have just kept looking like I continued to look for other people to help guide me for me to become the person I wanted to be. And I feel fortunate that here's somebody that both as a writer and comedian has been um a huge inspiration whether I've had met him or not and then as a person inspired me and, and kinda helped me my dad isn't very much a giver and always almost like gives the shirt off his back kind of thing, but there was a lot of stuff I learned from him that wasn't as helpful and as you get older you start to get taken advantage of and you start to think i'm spending a lot of time helping other people is this even worth it and then you kind of see how somebody like him and some of the books i've read kind of show you why you do that and the importance of it and how you can do it better and actually um kind of honing my niceness sounds kind of crazy but just that has been just as important as honing my craft
1: Ah. And I imagine it makes it more real, right? Carlin called he's giving you guidance and now this actually seems like a doable thing as opposed to before there might have been a little bit of a dream factor in it, right?
0: Yeah. I mean I, I honestly, until you get on T V and probably sometimes even after you get on T V it always feels like a dream factor. It is it's a hard business with not a lot of um when you tell people that you want to do it, when you tell people you do it, people kind of Unless you are a name, like, unless you are Jerry Seinfeld or you are hanging out with Jerry Seinfeld, people are like, that's cute that you think you're going to do that. And you just have to kind of accept that what you're doing is really hard and not a lot of people, not even make it in that sense of being a Jerry Seinfeld, but, like, make it in the sense, like, paying your bills doing it. And, um... I don't know i feel I feel oddly really fortunate that i've been I've been able to surround myself with really uh uh encouraging and impressive people on both like I said because show business is not a very friendly business and not a take care of each other kind of business, and I've been fortunate to meet a lot of people that are both talented and um thoughtful.
1: Well, you've been in this, I think you said, 12, 13 years. In the beginning days, your parents, the people around you, were they at all supportive or were they all like you're out of your mind, you'll never do this. So, when are you going to start working at Denny's because this isn't happening?
0: Um, I I hit it for a while. I, my parents always knew I was obsessed with comedy. Um, I definitely I start I went to the city when I was 16 and I did I slept over like my friend's aunt's place and my friends came out to a show I did and I did that for a little while without Telling anybody, Um, and then I finally told my dad, and it's so funny now that I look back on it, because you know after I told my parents, my parents were like, "You can do it, but you can't go to the city by yourself," and they would either they would come and they would like sit in a Starbucks, and I wouldn't let them come see me, and then I'd be like, you know, either it went well and I was like, "Yay," or I was like, "I want to go home," like, but um, and then eventually it was as long as somebody's parents were coming. And that lasted until I was about 17. But, like, I was really resentful when I was 16 because I was like, what's the big deal? It's just, a, you know, a 16-year-old girl by herself in a city that just got attacked by terrorists. Why can't I do this by myself?
1: Yeah, you know, like, it's nice to have nice the arrogance, arrogance of youth going for you, right?
0: Yeah, I, like, literally just didn't understand why nobody trusted me. And it's like you grow up and you realize it's not you. It's not that they didn't trust you. But... um. I don't know, I feel, my. I mean, my my parents actually surprisingly were always really encouraging. Now do they have flips where they weren't? Like my dad every couple of years tries to like encourage me to do something while doing stand-up. Only in the last couple of years as I've become more financially stable has that kind of dwindled a little bit. My mom was always really funny because my mom isn't very expressive and I'll be like, oh mom, I got, I did this thing and she'll be like, how much did it pay? You know what I mean? Like, they really are very much like Asian parents where they're just like, when I die, are you going to be able to take care of yourself? Um, Right, right, gotcha. But uh, I know that makes me sound like I'm Asian. Uh, I'm very Italian. But, like, you know, just this idea that they they want you to be secure and they don't want you to do, while they're very, I mean, they had five kids and most of us are artists, and they've been very encouraging of all of us, I think they are scared that they're going to die and we're going to be homeless. And so I think that scarcity is what is kind of hard. But like, you know, I borrowed my dad's car every single weekend for five years when I started doing the road. Uh, When I finally decided I had to get a car myself because I just had too much work and it was exhausting going back and forth to New Jersey, I saved up a bunch of money. I asked if my dad would help me buy a car. And he's like, you know what? I'll just give you my car. It was your car anyway. And, you know, just use that money for like insurance and just in case something breaks down. And like that stuff. That's the kind of stuff that, A, I feel really privileged and grateful. Because I know a lot of Canadians that don't have supportive parents. But then also the fact that, you know, I was able to borrow a car every weekend for five years. The fact that I was gifted a car. Like, there's a lot of things. Those things are huge and really give you a leg up and um, are really monumental in, well, I think in my life amazing
1: that you recognize that, because a lot of people wouldn't. I want to touch on this real quick, like maybe two or three minutes, and I wasn't going to bring it up at all, because so much of what you talk about revolves around you having dyslexia, but the thing that I, that I ran across that floored me is you were on a show called Cod Pass, which is a podcast about dyslexia, and maybe I'm in the dark, ignorant about this. I didn't think that dyslexia was prevalent enough where it would have its own pod... I mean, I guess there's a podcast on everything now. And the second thing is, you seem to be really big overseas in England and Europe because a great deal of what I researched about you, it seems like you're in Europe a lot and people are digging you over there, right?
0: It's going really well. When people ask me what my favorite audience is, I always say the Netherlands. Like, when I did that, uh, I did Live at Gotham on Comedy Central, like, five, six years ago. And a couple of years after it, it got aired in Europe. And I got a flood of emails from the Netherlands, and everybody was like, you're amazing. We love you when you're coming over. And at the time, I wasn't doing much outside of, you know, the East Coast and the Midwest. And I was like, probably never. And then I ended up doing kind of like a mixed vacation shows in London. And then the next time around, I ended up doing a a month-and-a-half tour. I did 40 shows in 45 days. And um, in that tour, I had a stretch where I was in the Netherlands and Denmark, and I did four cities in the Netherlands. And I still had some of those Netherlands fans. I had a girl bring me pie and take pictures of me. And um, I never loved a place more, and I've never had the response I've had from somebody and never loved the people more. Like, I feel like you're in in a Beauty and the Beast movie. Like, everybody is on bikes and, so friendly and pretty and nice. And then I don't understand why they get me, but they get me on a level that feels like we grew up together. And I loved just the atmosphere there. I loved the audiences but I've I've now performed in eight countries. I'm actually going to be in Europe all summer. I'm doing an Armed Forces Tour in the Middle East in Europe. I'll be in London for a month and a half doing shows and doing previews, and then I'm doing Edinburgh for the month of August.
1: Yeah, and you're so, playing French Fest, and I wanted to touch on that. And one of the things I was thinking as I YouTubed it and looked at how big and how eclectic it is is how do you think your comedy will translate there and do you have to kind of tweak things to make adjustments when you do overseas as opposed to like being in new york i mean do you kind of have to tweak the economy so it or your comedy so it translates better or do you just go in i'm liz here's what i got and you just cross your fingers everyone gets it
0: it's weird honestly um The first advantage you have, especially in somewhere like London or the UK, is they watch a lot of American television. So my accent and kind of my craftiness doesn't, they enjoy it. I mean, all of Europe loves, like, if they don't like America, they love New York. So everywhere I've ever went, I mean, I could say I'm American. They don't have any feeling. I say I'm from New York. You would think I'm a princess. Like, they, Europe is obsessed with New York. UK is obsessed with New York. I also kind of noticed that... Everywhere in London, all these other comedians, they were, like, characters. Like, there was this one guy that he was... I thought he was Swedish. He had all this stuff about being Swedish. Afterwards, I was like, oh, where in Sweden are you from? I just got back from, you know, Stockholm. And he was like, he was like, oh, sweetie. He's like, I'm from the UK. And I was like, oh, everyone here does characters. And I was like, well, why do I do well? I'm not a character. And then I realized, oh, I'm a character. I'm this ner- like, Jersey, yeah. New York. Go fuck yourself. Like, I'm... I'm like what they see on The Sopranos, and they love it. And so there's a couple of, like, words and references here and there that I've learned to kind of tweak or I might need to explain, but honestly, I go out there, and I do 99% of what I do anywhere else in the U.S., and it does, it honestly does pretty well. I mean, there's a couple of places I haven't done well, but the majority is, that's going to be anywhere you go, whether it's, I've. I've done better in Europe than I've done in West Virginia. And West Virginia feels more like another country to me.
1: West Virginia so, is more like another country.
0: <laughs> so for me, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to just – and I'm also really personal. Um, I All my stuff is about being, you know, a human, a woman, a uh, woman. Uh, uh, Angry person, like it's my stuff comes from even if you don't relate to it, I'm able to explain where I've come from, and it feels more like my topics have always been universal, so it's easier for me to translate and go over there as I am, as other than people that might talk about more topical stuff, they might talk about more their surroundings as a a culture. And I, I, while there are things that are culturally true for me, I talk about so many broad things and I have so many shelters from what I come from. I think it's just I'm I i I'm teaching people about me, not teaching the people about where I live or what have you.
1: Very, very nice and very relatable. Um, let me get Fern and D in here because I want a woman's perception on this, perspective on this as well. Fern, I think we just lost D. Fern, so yeah. I, I turned you on to Liz's comedy. I sent you her damaged animated series, which I'm going to have yeah. to kind of follow up and see what's going on with that. But give me your first impressions and do you have any questions for Liz?
2: Well, yeah, well first of all I want to say I checked out your YouTube channel and it's uh, hilarious. I like I love comedians, but I love comedians that can actually, you know, make me laugh and not go, "Oh, that's cute." Or, "Oh, yeah, that's funny." Like you actually made me laugh out loud, especially when you were talking about the sexual positions and smoking pot. Like that was absolutely hysterical. So, I love what you do. I love how you do it. I think it's fantastic. And I was I was watching um one of the clips and it's where how you dealt with a heckler and you have this heckler, and you seem to get genuinely pissed off at this guy. Like, you really tore at him. Do you still have that problem? Like, as you tore more and you're more widely known, do you still find that you have to deal with that heckling problem, or does that just kind of go away?
0: Uh, well first of all, thank you. Thanks for watching my stuff, guys. so nice. Sure. Um, Oh, yeah. I was wondering wondering where those views came from. Um, (laughs) But uh, uh, I do – I mean, you always – because – it's a you know an alcohol business you're always going to deal with some format heckler um in the beginning i got a lot of hecklers because I, I i mean i'm 30 and i still look like i'm like 18 years old and now it's even weird even weirder because i'm a headliner and i look like i'm 18 and people are saying all these credits and i think i think being a t- i'm tiny i'm i'm barely one. i still have acne <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> i i look like i'm 18 and I think it's a little bit of an adjustment for people, but I, I usually do pretty quickly. I think people know what I am. I My cadence has changed a little bit, but in the beginning I was much slower. I was a bit more monotone. I had a lot of pauses, and those pauses are just, just set tools for people to shout shit out. And, you know, when you don't respect somebody because they look young or because they look a certain way or because they're a woman, right. you get a lot of people that think they know what you're going to say or think they're better than you. I think... It's helped with my abilities, my authority, um, uh, my a little faster pace. But, I mean, I was in Seattle. I was headlining this club in Seattle. And the guy, I wouldn't say the guy was heckling as much as he was in the front row. It's a packed room. And he's talking so loud that I'm actually yelling in a mic. And I go, sir, could you just keep it down a little bit? And then out of nowhere, this guy to my left goes, Yeah, what the fuck, dude? Shut the fuck up. And then I came to that guy (laughs) and I was like, I don't need you. Who are you? You're being more of a (laughs) jerk. Next thing I know, we're all heckling each other. And it ended up being really fun and great, and I got a lot of compliments on how I handled it. And a lot of that comes from the fact that I was heckled all the time when I was younger. And it was something that I had to be, it was like a necessary evil. I had to be good at it. But, A, I don't want to deal with it. And, B, that's not the goal. The goal is for me to tell these jokes that I've worked really hard on and these perspectives that I want to get out there. But um, it happens less and less. I think as a comic, you're always going to be- have that skill. But I think as you kind of gain that authority, people know who you are, people paid money to come see you. Um, especially somebody like me, when you're a female headliner, you're getting a lot of people that are a little more open-minded and um, – uh, either they know me as a, as a comic or they they are like, oh, I bet this woman's good. Like, there's a little more of an openness when you come to see a female headliner, especially somebody that looks like they're 12, rather than just any Joe Schmo that's coming to your comedy club. but
1: that's a good point, and that's something I did want to touch on, and here's my assessment. So, you know, giving you a little history of what we're doing, we started off as a purely political show, and in the politics every day, wanted to make me stab myself after the show, so I was like, I've got to decompress, and kind of get like (laughs) a little wind-down comedy thing going, so I don't want to jump off a bridge after every episode, and I start delving into the comedy world, which I like comedy like anyone else, but I wasn't like a comophile where I was watching it all the time. And I kind of go down that rabbit hole and I see there's so many comedians. And I see women where I probably was a little bit guilty of the um, preconceived notion women aren't as funny as men. And that's a a notion, that's an idea that has definitely been changing over the last, evolving over the last three, four, five months. Because I am starting to tend to gravitate more towards women comics than men. But here's my assessment of what I've seen. I really feel like, and you can tell me if I'm talking out of school here... I really feel like women have a much better grasp on the business end of it. They're more savvy. When I check out your website, it's pristine. It's clean. I go to a guy's website, and it looks like his bedroom. I mean, it's like, it's yeah. like fucking beer cans and a hammock and, like, a TV that's slanted on the wall. Like, you can just tell a guy's webpage from a girl's webpage. So, one, do you think women are more busy, business savvy, especially on the coming-up level? than men are, and two, is being business savvy more important than the, the actual comedy talent part, or do they kind of go hand-to-hand, or is it like, you know, you've got to have the skill set to do comedy, and the business thing will just fall in line later? I know I'm throwing a lot at you.
0: Um, yeah, no, I'll say this. I, I kind of assess being a woman in comedy and how I've gone about it the same way they talk to black kids as they growing up in the school system, you can't just be good. You have to be the best. And it's a lot right. more pressure, and it's not fair. But the truth is is you're being assessed differently and unfairly, so you can't just be good. You have to be outstanding. You can't just be an ideal citizen. You have to be a legend. And so the same thing with women. You you can't just be good. You have to be the best. And so when you go out there and you know that you're already coming from a uh, uh, a disadvantage, you you have to work harder if you really want it, and you do work harder. And for me, as soon as they announce my name, I'm not even on stage. As soon as they hear it's a girl name, I'm at a disadvantage. And so I and then you see that I look young. You see that you know I'm pretty attractive if I'm allowed to say that about myself. I'm uh you know I'm I don't I'm my comedy is a little more heady. And so I have to be funny fast, and I have to – people call me a joke machine sometimes, and it's because, well, I'm in New York City, you have the best of the best, and I also can't rest on my laurels. So if I have one good joke, they're like, oh, well, she got one in there, but they don't expect me to have a second. They don't expect me to have a third. They don't expect me to be able to entertain for an hour. So you kind of – your skill set has to be stronger than the others around you. Um, I'm fortunate that my parents – own, my, both my parents are veterinarians, but they also own their own business, and my dad built it from the ground up, grew up poor, we grew up poor, and um, he everything he knows about money and business, he read in books, and he taught himself, and he went to seminars, and he took me to a lot of those seminars, and he taught me a lot. I, I'm even successful as a comedian today, not because I make a lot of money, because I knew if I wanted to do this full-time, this is the amount of money I have to make each month, and these are the things that I need to sacrifice if this, if being a full-time comic is more important than shoes or going out to dinner or whatever it is. And yeah, so- and that
1: really shines through. Like I was saying, like I can tell you've got a business savvy. And to my point of, do you think that's more prevalent around, along the lines of women comedians, or do you think I'm just making an overgeneralization? Because I feel like the women I have checked out have really got their shit together when it comes to social media and promoting themselves.
0: Well, I'll say this, and this, is my, this might come out really fucked up, and I, I don't mean it to. Um, when you're at a disadvantage, and this comes from women, um, anybody that's in a business that's at a disadvantage. So actually, weirdly enough, black guys, because of their uh, stereotype is that they're funny in comedy, often are at an advantage, but they might be at a disadvantage in other areas of the business, uh, Asian comedians, Middle Eastern comedians, uh, Latino comedians, anybody that's on the fringe that people assume aren't funny or there's not a lot of them you find that those comedians tend to um, try to find more doors and don't make the assumption that things should just be given to them so they work a little bit harder. So I walk into a room and I don't assume that people are going to open doors for me, And I mean in the career sense. Right. Um, So I have to make a point to open them myself, and I go, well, what what doors can I open today or can work on opening without an agent, without a manager, without people um, in my corner? And because you don't make those assumptions, you're constantly working on them, rather than sometimes when you're just a white male comedian and you're funny, it's like, well, you're welcome and you just wait for people to open the doors for you. And a lot of my white male comedian friends who are brilliant comedians, brilliant writers, I've had to sit them down and be like, if you're not the chosen four that they pick each year, you need to do some of the work that I'm doing because guess what? You're just another white comedian with a beard, and you need to stand out. And so I've been able to kind of help my friends that if you're not one of these chosen white guys, You're gonna have to come hang out with the girls and the Asians and start looking at what you bring to the table that's unique and what you can do now. And I'm fortunate that I think when you come from a disadvantage in life, whatever it is, whether it has to do with your financial place or you know some kind of being some kind of minority or having difficult social skills or whatever the reason is, you can either say this is my lot in life and oh woe is me. Or you can say, well, what other skills do I have? How else can I shine? And I, I've, I've always looked at the business side as creative business. I love reading books about creative business. I love, you know, the, um, the what do you call it, like, um,
1: the logistics, the underdog
0: story. Yeah, the underdog story of how they had nothing and they built it up. I, 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 I have a social media presence because I lost my manager. I now have a manager and agent, but. Five years ago, my manager became an agent. He dissolved his company. Um, He actually became an assistant agent, so he couldn't even pick up people. And I had a bunch of opportunities that fell through. I felt super alone in the business, and it felt like I just hit a wall, and this was my life. And I go, well, what can I do now to help myself? And I go, well, I could build a fan base. Well, how do you build a fan base if you're not getting the shows because people aren't booking you? Why well, I can do social media. Well, I don't know how to do social media. Let's go see if there's books. And I've probably read about 15 books about social media, and I decided five years ago to take a risk every day and try something new. And I do that with everything. I mean, all the Europe stuff was taking a risk. Damage was taking yes, a risk. Um that is key. You know, yeah, you have to. And I think sometimes when things are comfy because you're, you know, a white male in a business that says you are funny, you don't take risks. But that's how you grow as a human, as a comic, um, as a person. And it's funny, I did an interview for Psychology Today. um, Yes, I read that. And it was interesting. I, I had this epiphany about a month before I did the interview, which is I take a lot of risks in my career, and they're still scary. I still. I still get scared posting certain jokes online. I get scared doing jokes on stage. I get scared of making some, like, I'm terrified about Edinburgh. That is a huge financial and emotional risk because what if nobody shows up? And, you know, what if people don't like me? What, what if I don't make the money back? But I, I've learned enough to be like, all right, here's how you can support yourself. And worst case scenario, I bomb and lose some money in Scotland. I've done that in New Jersey. At least it's a prettier place. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, me. let me move
1: on to this because we've only got a couple minutes. Yeah. Not to interrupt you, but I want to get to this last thing because you've got a Hulu. Um, actually, it's season three of coming to the stage. I was checking all those out, and I think the show is awesome. And here's something I noticed because I just started kind of interacting with comedians over the last year. I'm not a comedian myself, but I'm, I'm adding friends on Facebook. I don't like going through the web pages. I'd rather have a one-on-one personal, hi, Liz, I'm Nick type of deal. And I notice when I look at the friends that like they all have you have mutual friends with all these different comedians now. So tell us a little bit about coming to the stage, but also do like all you guys know each other? Like it seems like a giant collective all you comedians and is there like a East Coast, West Coast, coolio Snoop Dogg war vibe? Like with hosts <laughs> and comedy, like it, I, I'm trying to understand it's all being someone new uh, from the outside.
0: Um, So it's almost like a a lot of it's a a mixture of where you're from and a graduating class. So it's very much like high school. I know the people I started with. I know the people that started a little bit after me, and then I know the people before me, and then you know kind of the legends and the people that you looked up to and watched TV with. And sometimes those people become your friends because you open for them and you do clubs with them. So it starts there. So, you know, I know the freshmen – like, let's say I'm a junior. I, I know all the juniors. I know I know some freshmen and sophomores. I know some seniors, and I know some teachers. So there there's that. Then, and that's just in New York, but then I travel. I'm in Baltimore. I'm in D.C. I'm in Ohio. I'm in L.A. You start to meet people as you open for other people, as they host for you, as and that kind of expands. And then somebody will be like, hey, I have a friend of mine that's coming to New York. Do you know any shows? Then you meet that person you expand that way there is an la new york situation there's also different cities so you may i started in new york because i grew up in new jersey and i went to college in new york so i've always kind of been new york but there is uh there's a lot of really great scenes that at some point if you want to grow you have to decide am i going to la or new york so boston has an amazing scene dc has a great scene chicago san francisco um uh seattle um So these scenes have to make a decision, do I go to New York or do I go to L.A.? That decision comes from, do I want to be the best comedian in the world or do I want to write scripts or become an actor or an actress?
1: Gotcha.
0: I've stayed in New York and people that come to me, it is the best in the world, by the way. The best comedians and the best comedy writers are in New York City. Great uh, TV writers, movie writers, actors, comedic actors eventually they move to L.A. I've had so many friends move to L.A. I I try to go out there once a year. Um, I've met a lot more L.A. comedians. I've gained a lot more um, understanding of that scene. I don't think they're the strongest comedians because a lot of them, it's not their first passion or they lose the passion when you can make A, more money, and it's a lot easier to do acting or writing or whatever. So it's such a hard business that if you're not 100% in, you're not going to develop the skills. And if you're not being challenged, And don't have the stage time like we do in New York City. You're not going to grow as well. But I have a lot of respect for both scenes. It's just very different. I feel like I have superpowers when I go to LA because I'm just I'm they they're just not as strong. And all the women are just stunning and trying to be actresses. And I am I just I'm I'm weirdly a sneak attack because they don't realize that I've been honing my craft for 13 years in the city, pretty much unknown. But um, I know I know a lot of comedians, you know, 13 years of anything, you're going to know a lot of people. But Facebook, definitely. Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff, you really start to build a community. I do not, like, somebody will friend me, and it'll be like, you have 3,000 friends in common. And that's crazy. I yeah. don't know 3,000 people. I do know that most of those are either comedians or people in the business. But I... You, you don't keep in touch with that many people, but you, you do. You meet a lot of comedians because I'm constantly on the road. I'm constantly working with new people. People are seeing me on TV. You're collaborating. You're tweeting at each other. You, it is a very communal situation where you do know a lot of people.
1: Well, and one of the things that I noticed, and then I'll kind of let you go after this, but dealing with this from the outside and talking to people on both coasts because we're headquartered here in Knoxville, Tennessee, I actually ran across people on the West Coast that were part of, like, a pot comedy scene. Like, they all to- told jokes about pot, and that was their thing. And when I started engaging with their social media, it was like they all hated each other, and they were all attacked. Like, don't go see this guy. He's not a true burner. Don't go see this guy. And I was like, good God, this is like the pot scene. I thought you would be the most mellow people in the world. Yeah, that is And, weird. like, watching you guys go back and forth at, at each other's throats, like, I kind of started varying away from – Offering to have people from that kind of community call into the show just because I saw there was like so much drama where it was weird where I was like, well I thought it would be the opposite situation, but describing it in high yeah. school terms really makes sense to me,
0: yeah, and uh, some of that might just be because a that is a very secular community, and then also it's it's um it's a new- if they're newer, a lot of that kind of hostility. I think comes from newer comics because it comes from a very desperate place of, you know, it comes from any place where you're scared. You're like, I am doing something nobody supports. I'm, it's really hard. It's hard to get stage time. People don't know who I am. People don't respect me. And think about, think about how you felt in high school and you do that every day, sometimes for 10 to 15 years, it wanes on you and you, I mean, I definitely started to become a person I wasn't proud of and, I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of good friends both in and out of comedy that kind of helped guide me and then was smart enough to go to therapy and really worked through a lot of the issues that the re- what gets you into comedy might not be healthy, but what keeps you staying and what makes you better can be healthy. And I have really started to realize that I've made a defense mechanism in my career, and I'm one of five kids, and I want attention, and I'm still a giant child that wants attention, but I can earn it, and I can... Uh, help other people, and I can grow as a person doing this, and I don't have to be this desperate 12-year-old that wants people to listen to them, you know?
1: Very, very nice. Okay, Hulu, coming to the stage. Tell us a little bit about that, and I will cut you loose.
0: Um, That's just, it's like a little showcase show I did, I think, 12 minutes. I'm hoping they don't edit it to death. I actually took a risk doing that, and because you don't have any, um, you can they don't check your material, and they don't um, censor you. You can say whatever you want. I did three jokes and then I did a seven minute story that could never be on TV otherwise. Cause it's too long for late night. And it cur- I curse a lot and um, I'm was really, it, the taping went really well and hopefully it'll be out, I think in four to six weeks and hopefully they don't, like I said, they don't edit it to death, which happens a lot with comedy and it's no longer your joke afterwards. But um, I'm really excited. Just, I had my makeup done. That's like half the time I'm just like, I'm a girl. Um, right. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just something I'm always excited when more like I can kind of hit the masses a little more easily than just with social media, and I'm only on TV like once a year at this time in my career, so I'm excited about it.
1: Well, I know everybody wants to know Fern D, who um, had to dip out of here. They all want to know what's going on with Damage. Is it coming back? Were you just having <clears> animator <throat> problems? What's going on with Damage? Because we all love the first season.
0: Oh, that really means a lot because that was one of the most stressful years of my life. Uh, as you can see, I lost uh, – I had seven animators in a year. Uh, it was supposed to just be the two main guys, but um, all my animators I'm actually still friends with. A lot of them are out in L.A., so I got to hang out with them. Um, it was so much work, and it kind of hindered my ability to do other work that i I would have to raise more money than I think I'm capable of raising to do another season so I'm trying to do a couple things with that I'm trying to pitch it so it could be something bigger whether it was a production company helping me make it and then even if it was still online it was somebody else kind of footing the bill or helping with the process so that's something I'm working on or something even bigger like it would be on a network and then worst case I think I might try to do like a children's book or something with it it's still my baby and I love it and it's really important to me and I while I was doing it I got a lot of positive feedback but the actual being a boss and maintaining something, even though it was once a month, it was, I was like, I had an LA moment where I was on a treadmill and my animators were texting me and they're like, what color should the shirt be? I was like, the shirt is blue. You want to do that? Like literally like on a treadmill, like giving orders. And I was like, this is not, this is, and I didn't make any money. I lost money from it. It was just a passion project or something. I've always loved animation and, I like talking about the broken side of me and trying to show that there's positivities to feeling broken. And it was at a really time where I felt very broken. And um I don't know, it was it's a passion project that I want to continue to work on, but it it's kind of um I have to I need more help than I had before as I see how much it drains me and there's so many other things I'd like to work on.
1: Yeah, and you are busy. Fern, I'll let you have the last word here since I kind of trampled all over you and you haven't got a chance to talk too much. I'm just – Liz's career is amazing to me. So that, that's probably why Aww. we're going a little long.
2: Oh, no, that's fine. Actually, I, I just – I, I want to say listening to you, like I really admire the amount of introspection you have. I think that's lost. And and I I do talk about this on the other show too, but I think that's lost on a lot of people is just being introspective and looking within yourself and finding the strength to analyze and look at things and figure out a solution. You know, if you have a problem you have a solution. So I admire that. And the other thing I wanted to touch on was the um was damaged. At the very end the, the outro, it says it's sung by Emily Millet. Is that your sister?
0: This is my little sister. She is a jazz singer and singer songwriter. She wrote that song and she actually I asked her to expand it and make it into like a three minute song and the three minute version I told her I was like if she records it I will find the money and have an animated music video for her. She actually just, yeah. she was in Brooklyn with me, but she moved out to L.A. recently. She is a brilliant singer-songwriter, and I I've, I've worked really hard for my skills. My sister is just naturally talented and just incredible.
2: Yeah, she's All got right. a beautiful voice. Just wanted to let you know I appreciated that. It's Aww. gorgeous.
0: No, thank you. I appreciate you saying it.
1: All right, Liz, tell everybody where they can find you on the various social media platforms.
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm on, I mean, my thing that I like the most is actually Instagram. So it's at Liz Mealy. It's a lot of cat pictures, so I actually don't recommend people looking at them. Um, But uh, uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook. um, I mean, really everything is at Liz Mealy, M-I-E-L-E. And my website has all my current dates, uh, tour dates, and podcasts I've done before. I try to keep it updated, and that's just LizMealy.com.
1: All righty. Fair enough. I want to thank you so much for calling in today. I am going to go grab some lunch. You guys have a great Super Bowl Sunday.
0: Thank
2: you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.